John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35. John 13, 33 through 35. The heart of genuine Christianity is found somewhere in the church. Um, uh, yeah, I'll say it. Uh, I thought about just having a members-only church meeting this morning. So a lot of times my evangelistic heart is so concerned with the broader scope of people being saved and brought into the kingdom of God, which is extremely important and, and concerned about getting everybody involved in the process of the preaching of the sermon. But know this from the beginning, the heart of this sermon has to do with the church that's actually here. There's a lot of people all around, but you will understand there are some people here who actually make up this church, who are what this church really is. And then there's some outside of those circles and things like that. But I've walked with some people in this place for 21 years. And so as we get closer to the end of this sermon, I really want to encourage and build up those who have gone through hell and high water in this church over the past two decades. So that's kind of the thrust of where we shall be going with this message. All right, John 13 and verse 33. Uh, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, I'll, I'll now also say to you that where I go, you are not able to come. Verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you should love one another, just as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you should love one another. Father in heaven, I pray you'll take this text and encourage your church, build them up in what they've been doing for many years so far. May their love increase. May my love increase. May we look not to each other, but may we look to Christ as the standard for what loving one another actually is and how we can duplicate it. Lord, help us to grow in our love for one another, rather than in our love for ourselves, And Lord, if perhaps there are some here today who are outside of the body of Christ, outside of Christ even, I pray today that they would see, I want a family like that. I want a family that would love me and help me to walk out Christianity. And Lord, that you would show them this and they would have a great desire to pursue you in the only institution on the face of the globe that matters. And we pray these things by your Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. This is 1 John, just quoting from 1 John, or actually reading from 1 John, I'm not quoting, but just to set the same thing before you. He said in 1 John, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. It's an old commandment, but at the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. It's true in him, and it's true in you. Why is that? Well, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The true light. 
What is the true light? The reflection of the love of Christ in the body of Christ is the shining of this light. And John also says in 2 John, and he says, And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have heard from the beginning, back all the way in Leviticus 19, that you love one another. I read those two passages because they both talk about a new commandment. And that's in our text today, and we shall answer that momentarily. Let me ask rhetorical questions just to kind of get some thoughts in your brain, and then we'll begin to deal with this text. Thinking about the aspect of love, these are rhetorical questions. What type of love does not get married? Two people love each other, but they won't get married. What type of love does not sacrifice? What type of love will not walk a of Scripture? What type of love does not give itself fully to the church? What type of love does not financially support the church? What type of love does not wash a brother's feet? What type of love does not encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ? What type of love doesn't read the Bible? What type of love doesn't find value and treasure the Word of God? Well, I'll give you a short answer. It is, well, it's a love that's not biblical. Because a love, it's just a love that's self-serving, self-infatuating, and self-fulfilling. This type of love that a lot of people live with is a love that reserves the right to walk away at any given moment that they don't benefit themselves. At any given moment. The, the person not committed to a local assembly is the same as a person not committed to a marriage. When it stops benefiting me, I retain the liberty to walk. And I walk. Now, love's preparation, verse 33 Love's preparation. I want you to, again, this, this chapter 13 is so filled with the love of Christ, but you see it again. The only time in the Gospel of John you see this word is here. Little children. Now, he says it six, seven times in 1 John. But here, it's a term of endurement. It's a term of great compassion relationally. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Just for a brief little illustration... I experienced this so many times in my life, uh, being in full-time evangelism and traveling around the world. How many number of times I had to look at my babies in my home and say, I've got to go, and you can't go with me right now. You're going to have to stay home. Why would I, as a father, look at my little babies and say, look, I'm, de I'm departing, and you can't go. You you're going to look around the house for me, but you're not going to be able to find me because I'm not going to be here. And I try to explain that to a one-year-old, a three-year-old, a five-year-old. You're trying to explain that. Why? Because you love them, and you know that they're going to have an emotional response to dad not being in the home. So you explain it, and you say, but in a little while, it'll change. But for a season, you're not going to be able to find me when you look around the house. This is Christ, right just hours before abandonment and crucifixion, with the eleven saying, look, little children, I, I, you're going to search for me, but 
I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be gone. I'm on a mission and I am departing from this place and going someplace else. He's doing this because he loves them. Love prepares those it loves. He's making it. Look, Jesus doesn't just not show up. He didn't just, hey, where'd he go? I don't know. He didn't tell me nothing. He's, He's just gone. Jesus doesn't work like that. He makes it clear what the future holds because he cares about his children. Little children, you're going to seek me. That's what's going to happen in the future. And you're not going to be able to find me. But that's going to change. And that will get later on in the sermon. But he's preparing them. That's what I want you to get out of verse 33. Is that love prepares those that it loves. Now, three sub-points, if you will, just to bring out the clarity of this text. Where is he going? Make no mistake about it, Jesus knows where he's going. He is going to heaven. He's going home to be with his Father, to be in the presence of glory with all the angels. That's where he's going. Right now, at this point in time in history, the disciples can't go with him. They're going to be left. But Jesus is going to heaven Now, just to remind you of some words from Scripture, John 17, 5. And the word says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world was. This glorify me with yourself, that's where he's going. I'm going to glory. I'm going to the invisible Father. I'm going to be with him. And then also, the Apostle Paul looks back upon this, and he writes it this way in Ephesians 4, 9. Paul looks back and he says, quote, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So the apostle Paul looks back. Christ came down, Christ went up. He descended and he ascended. This is what Jesus is telling these 11. I'm about to go. I'm going to ascend. You'll see that in the first part of Acts. And he went up just like he came, up in the clouds of glory. And he ascends back into the throne room of God. That's what's about to happen. I want you guys to know this. Things are about to get really dark. People are going to be spitting in my face. They're going to be cursing me. They're going to be nailing me to a tree. They're going to throw me in a grave. A lot of things are about to happen. I just want you to know it will not negate my destiny. I'm going to heaven. Secondly, the problematic course of this destination is, is it leads through the cross. That's the direct route. He can't get to glory through another means. In order for him to fulfill all things and go back to his father in glory, he must needs, not go through Samaria, he must needs go through Calvary. You can't bypass the cross to get the crown. That's Americans. Americans want to bypass the cross and just take the benefit. You can't do that in gospel literature. You must go through Calvary. So that's what Christ is saying. Let me remind you that this is not new to Jesus. He knows the plan. John chapter 3 Verse 14, as Moses 
done this throughout his ministry. John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know. This is going to happen. This is the future trajectory. And then you have John chapter 12, what we looked at not very long ago. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He said this, to show them by what kind of death he would die. I'm going to heaven. I must needs go through Calvary. He's telling them this because in those days where it's dark and they can't find Jesus' presence, and in 40 days after that when he's gone, that they will have these words sowed in their heart and the Spirit of the living God can bring them to their mind and they can reflect that a tragedy has not happened here. A fulfillment has happened here and our Savior has gone to glory. And if he has defeated death, then we shall overcome death. All of these are for his children. I want my children to know this because I love them. This is the heart of Christ towards his followers. And then I would also refer to you Luke 18 just very briefly. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He says, look, here's what's going to happen. They're going to turn me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be shamefully treated. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be flogged and I'm going to be killed. But children, little children, don't go into despair because on the third day, I'm going to get up out of that tomb and I'm going to be alive in this body, resurrected body. You will see me again. Right now you can't come. But in a little while, things will change. So we have a destination heaven. We have a direct route, the cross. And we have a temporary denial. A temporary denial. Not now. You can't go with me now. But afterward, look down, if you will, into uh, verse 36. Um, let me get my text there. Just glance down. We'll be there next week. But look at John and chapter 13 and verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. See the word now. But look at the reassurance. But you will follow afterward. Man, if I'm in this situation, these are comforting words. I'm sad that I can't go with you right now. But I'm very encouraged that someday I will. Jesus is wise, compassionate, and loving. There's a separation. It's temporary. But later you will come. They, want, they will want his physical presence. Look, we overlook this sometimes, but if you walked with Jesus every day, sat at his feet and listened to his teaching every day, ate and fellowshiped with him every day, spent your three years of your life with him and you woke up one day and he was gone you would wish for his presence he's like man i wish jesus was here i mean if, he, if i could just ask him they, they had to have those thoughts especially during that scene before his resurrection but even after the 40 days when he ascended there had to be days in john's life in peter's life there had to be days in bartholomew's life they're like man i wish that jesus was still here they're searching. They wish they could grab a hold of him and can't. 
But that's all right. The Lord is such a good shepherd. He's provided all that they need while he's gone. He's given the church believers the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That every believer in Christ is already filled with the Spirit of the living God. He takes up residence and our bodies become the temple of the living God. So here we are, absent from the present body of Christ with us, but with this gift of a comforter who dwells with us every day, guiding, leading, exposing, illuminating, granting understanding, guarding, protecting, all of those things the Spirit of God does for us every day. Let us value the third person of the Trinity. He is a gift from Christ. Now, interestingly, is this. If you compare this text about you can't go with me or you'll seek me and you can't find me, compare what he does with the disciples with the exact same phrase and how he deals with the Jews. Okay, So he uses this phrase to these unbelieving Jews one way. He uses this phrase with these 11 another way. Let me show you. The Jews are told in chapter 7 verse 34 that they will not be able to find him. There's nothing that follows that. There's no now, there's no after a little while. None of that is there. You just can't come. Period. And it's just left. But with the disciples, they're told, just a couple of verses later, it's chapter 14, I am going to prepare a place for you. It's a whole different thing. You can't come now, but I'm going to build you something. I'm going to prepare something for you because you're mine. We're in a love relationship. I'm going to take care of your future. The Jews are told in chapter 8, verse 21, that they will die in their sins. That's it. You're going to die in your sins. You're going to look for me. You're not going to find me, and you will die in your sins. That's not the way he speaks to these 11. You see, in John 14, 19, you just glance over to another column, I'm sure. In 14, 19, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you, on the other hand, will see me because I live, you also will live. He gives that promise, not to the unbeliever, but to the believer. I'm telling you, you're going to see me, and the reason is, is because I'm alive. And I'll always be alive, and you're going to live too. Now, for unbelievers, you're going to die in your sins. And this is the way he unfolds it. So what great hope. Although a temporary denial, it's not a permanent denial. As far as application goes, just to remind you, if nothing else, the shepherd, Jesus, provides all that is necessary for his disciples. That remains true today. He gives you everything you need as his children. Now, there are those who would abandon a flock. Jesus isn't one of them. You know what Zechariah says? David, you're going to have to go let that guy in out there. He's really wanting to come to church. Zechariah says... Only a worthless shepherd would abandon his sheep. Don't be too distracted. It's distracting me as well. Try to pay attention here. Only a worthless shepherd abandons his sheep. Zechariah says this, quote, Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. 
May the sword strike his arm, his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. A, a person who's a shepherd of a flock just bails. This is a worthless shepherd. I just want you to get from this text that Jesus is not worthless. He never abandoned his children. He never abandons his sheep. You'll see in John 17, of those you have given me, I have lost none. Zero. Jesus never loses a sheep. Ever. It's never lost. Why? Because this relationship is a covenantal relationship. And when he covenants with an individual, he keeps them for eternity. You see that? You know, all these debates about you can lose your salvation, you can't lose your salvation. You have no idea what you're talking about. This keeping and losing is not in your authority. The shepherd adopts sheep and he holds them permanently because he's a good shepherd not because you have a good will it's because he loves his children he never loses one the loving preparation of the shepherd note is only in regards to the sheep i remind you judas heard none of these things love's standard verse 34 notice the text a new commandment I give to you, that you ought to love one another. And then there's this word we will deal with. It's the word, just as. I loved you. I have loved you. That you also should love one another. This is verse 34. Now, I'm going to reword the verse a bit to try to bring out the sense of these verbs and what he's saying here. So maybe this reading will help you just a little bit to see what's going on. So I worded it this way. It's not what I say as a translation. This is just trying to bring out some emphasis. Jesus gives this new commandment in the present tense in order that they should love one another in present time. These, these 11 are to love one another now, in the present the love that is duplicated is based on one thing. The entirety of how Jesus loved them during his time with These 11 during three years. What did Jesus do with them? How did that relationship work? What does that look like? Because that's the only valid example we have for how I'm supposed to love you and you're supposed to love me. So however it was played out in the life of Christ, that's what we're seeking to duplicate. The example that he gave was in order that they should use the whole of their life to love one another. The mutual... This mutual Christ-loving relationship between brothers is what the church is supposed to be. Now, I understand. I'm not completely as dumb as some think I am. I understand this don't happen in a lot of churches. I get it. I've been in some of those churches in my life. And it don't happen to the degree it ought to happen in this church. But it doesn't change the standard. It's still what's required of the church. 
Whether we're doing it or not doing it, we can't change the requirement because Jesus set the requirement and gave the standard that we are measured by. So all we can do is humble ourselves under this commandment and say, how can I improve? How can I grow in this clear teaching of Scripture? Now, he says that this is a new commandment. I give to you a new commandment. We want to take a little bit of time here because the commandment to love one another has been around since the law of Moses. You go back to Leviticus 19, and you will find it in verses 17 and 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, it's been around a long time. So Moses says, love your neighbor. Jesus says, love your neighbor. But he says it's new. We want to know what's new about it. It's also, by the way, it's also taught in the book of Solomon, Proverbs 20, Proverbs 24, this idea of love for one another, not treating each other with evil in our hearts. And then we, we would also want to summarize this and say, if you go to Mark 12, 29 through 31, you will find that the entire sum of Old Testament law is summarized in this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. So, so in what way is it new if all of it is shown clearly in the Old Testament? That's my question. Let me give you a couple of things and we shall answer. I do want to say this because there's goofy theology that floats around out there. Remember this. There's a lot of people out there that want to reject the law of God. They want to reject the moral law of God. They want to reject law in general. And they want to go into this, aren't you under grace? Yes, I am under grace. But under grace in the New Testament, the one who gave me grace gave me a commandment in the New Testament. Now, a commandment is the law. Here's the command. I'm still under this command. It is expected of me individually to love brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a New Testament command. Do, does the, do people want to throw out the laws of the New Testament as well? This is the very heart and fabric of Christ for his church. Love one another. We can't throw that out. We're bound to that. You say, I don't like things that are binding. I don't care if you like them. Jesus gave it. It's a resounding command. Now, I changed up D.A. Carson's quote to make it better. I'm sure he would be greatly happy. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthodoxy, right belief. Without orthopraxy, which is right practice. Right belief without right practice. To this command to love one another, this new covenant, D.A. Carson says... Is just so much humbug. I know it, but I'm not going to do it. That's just humbug. That's all it is. If you know it, you are bound to it, and you must submit to it, or you're living in disobedience to the command of Jesus. It's what we do. We love one another. And when we get to the end, we're going to encourage one another in this. But that's the truth of it. Now, what is the way that this commandment is new? The way this commandment is new. I'm going to give you four. These are just mine. Uh, maybe somebody has a longer list, but this is mine. Number one, how is this commandment new? It is new in standard. What do I mean by that? This commandment is exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ who physically before their eyes washes their feet. 
Here's the standard, guys. In Leviticus, you heard love your neighbor. I don't know what you thought that meant. Let me show you what that meant. I don't know that anybody read Leviticus 19 and washed Moses' feet. I don't know that they washed anybody's feet. But Jesus took that command and washed their feet. This is, here's the standard. This is self-sacrificing, doing that which no one else will do. Denying myself that I can serve you. I've given you... ...and she meets the need. This is the standard. And then, ultimately, that was foot washing, yes. But ultimately, as you know, that was... Watch this, guys. I'm going to lay down on that tree, and I'm going to be nailed to it, and I'm going to bleed and die in order to give you life. Ultimate self-sacrifice. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's the standard here that Christ has set before their eyes. Number two, it's new in purpose. New in purpose? How so? Because the text goes on to say, by this, love that's done between brother and brother, love that's done like this, it's by that very action that everyone in the world will know that you are my disciples. So it's new in purpose. Now, this love between the brethren in the church is evangelistic and missional. Jesus says, if you do this right, the whole world will know you're my disciples. What an evangelistic strategy. I understand we want to go preach on the street. I understand we want to pass out tracts. I'm in favor of all these things. I'm in favor of plant churches, go on mission trips. Amen to all of that. But if we don't have love for one another like this, how's the world going to know anything? Number three, it's new in covenant. I could take a long time here, but I've chosen not to. It's an exchanged heart. The old covenant was external. The new covenant is internal. In the nation of Israel, you have law. That law is put upon everybody. Everybody is to love their neighbor. If you violate the law, you've, you've, you've transgressed the law, and there's consequences for transgressing the law. Not everybody in the nation of Israel even believed God. A lot of them were pagan people, but they're under that law naturally because it's an external law over them. In the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, we get a new heart, we get a new spirit, and now that law of loving one another is internal, and it flows out of our hearts because our hearts have been changed, our natures have been changed. Now it's not an external law, but it's written inside of me in my nature, and I have a desire to love because God put it there. It's different. And then it's new in similitude, and that's the part, if you listen to the sermon, this will be the part that you will struggle with the most. So if you consider yourself Christian, many of you do, then take this challenge, similitude. The way love is to be between believers is just as. Just as. Just as what? Just as Jesus loved his disciples. That's the way. So now, I've got to grapple with this just as. What does it mean? I know what it means for Jonah. I know what it means for Noah. I know what it means for Moses. And I know what it means for the Apostle Paul. So how does that look? Jonah. Just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
He was the sign, Jesus was the sign. Equal, in the sense, perfectly reflecting this signship to a generation. Noah, just as it was in the days of Noah, eating and drinking and marrying, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. Just like it was here, it's going to be just like that here. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. If it's like it here, it's like it here. They're equal, they're parallels, they're synonyms. However it's here, it's over here. And then the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, he says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, this is Paul's. You got a complaint about, say, somebody says something, somebody does something in the church. You got a complaint about the old people. You got a complaint about the young people. You got a complaint about the middle aged people. You got a complaint because somebody did this and they didn't do that and they did this and they didn't do that. I got great news for you. Forgive each other. How? Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This, this is the this implications of Scripture. This is the standard we are held to. Now, thinking with those thoughts, let me take you back in history just a little bit. I used to go to this church. It was about, I don't know, about 40, 50 people. Remarkable group of people. Interesting things about this church. They took up a large amount of money for people when someone died. That's nice. That's loving, right? Somebody dies, you take up money. They even paid for some funerals of people that didn't have money to pay for funerals. They provided food and fed those who had a major calamity in their life. You'd show up, everybody said, there's so much food you couldn't eat it all. It's a pretty cool deal. They raised money when one of their members had a horrific event in their life. More money raised than I'd ever seen raised. I was pretty humbled by that. They were really good listeners. And you could go to this group, and you could share your problems, and they'd just listen to you. Like they really cared. You could just open up and say whatever you needed to say. Sometimes I spoke there. They'd let me speak. And they would give a love offering. It was a generous love offering. I thought, these people are really cool. And you know what? There were sometimes I didn't like what they were doing. And I'd just leave. And they didn't even get mad at me. I'd come back the next week, and they didn't even say nothing about me walking out. You know what the problem is. Some of you do. Tony knows what the problem is. Here's the problem. I'm talking about the honky-tonk woman, the bar that I used to go to before it closed down in order to take the gospel to those people. Those things I said about this bar are true. They did this stuff. But I'm like, should not the church be different than the bar? I mean, they fed people. We feed people. They take up money. We take up money. There should be something different here. Whatever's going on with the honky-tonk woman was not biblical love. So how can the church be different in loving one another than just simply taking up money or passing out food or something like that or listening to somebody? What's the difference with the love that Jesus is talking about? Well, I'll give you a few. Number one, washing feet. The bar didn't do that very well. And they never denied themselves and really served somebody else because they loved them. But the church ought to. Number two, commitment. 
Jesus bound himself to them regardless of their faults. He never abandoned them. He never lost one of them. And his commitment was to that group. to say we're going to serve Jesus in this place until he comes we've made a valid commitment to one another to hold each other accountable and we're in this thing and there's accountability between us on our good days and on our bad days all of this is we're in this thing together it's a commitment the bar does not have that example he loved them by living in a way that could be imitated nobody in the bar is living in a way that you ought to imitate but in the church, we ought to be living in a way that the younger generation can imitate us. And we can learn from the older generation because there's lives being lived in godliness and in holiness. I would also say that the church ought to have truth. Jesus loved the disciples so much, he kept giving them truth. Teaching, showing, revealing, preaching. Why? Because truth meets the inner core of the soul, the desperate needs of the heart. And so he loved them enough to tell them the things they needed the most. The bar's not going to do that. Some kind of thing where you're loosely attached is not going to do that. You're going to have to get in a place where there's a commitment of covenant of love that somebody would speak into your life. The other day, Travis comes and he stands up here and says, man, I blew it here and here and here. Will you forgive me? That's what you do in relationship with truth. Truth gets confronted. Conviction comes. Confession comes. We forgive. Why? All of this is happening because we're bound together in a thing called church. Forgiveness. Not only taught them the truth of forgiveness, he modeled it by being nailed to a tree. Yeah, people do stuff like this in church all the time. Well, they did this and they did this. When you're bringing it up and gossiping behind their back, you're the problem. You're the one at fault because the responsibility you have is to forgive. I've already told you more than I've heard. That nonsense has to go. When there's a wrong done to you, you ought to be the first to forgive. Why? It's the standard Jesus taught. Look at what the disciples, he's washing their feet and they're trying to figure out who's the greatest. And he forgives. And Peter's denying and he forgives and restores. This is the standard. This is what the church does. And for the sake of it, time. <laughs> he loved them so much he invested a significant amount of time into their lives. You ought to invest in one another. I, look, I, you know this. I've been in church 53 years. I've been in a lot of churches. And nobody know anybody, anything about anybody. I know that happens all the time, and we don't have it perfect here. I get it. But there ought to be a sense in which we know each other on a better level because we've invested in each other in the sense of time. It's the only way we're going to learn who we are is to spend some kind of time together. Humanity's baffling to me. We use the word love like people obey rules when it benefits them think about this let me just contrast this with marriage real quickly here people do not live together because they love each other they live together to use each other for personal benefit while they retain the freedom to walk and yeah, what's the modern vernacular shacking up 
hanging out together, living in the same abode. Don't lie. Don't kid yourself. There's no love there. Oh, yeah, we love each other. You're lying out your teeth. As soon as your shacking up relationship stops benefiting you, you're walking. I've been around long enough. I know how this stuff works. You don't even have to go to divorce court. You don't have to pay any fees. You just don't come home anymore. So you do it because there's no real commitment there. It's all surface for selfish benefit. Now think this through. People don't attend church because they love the church. It's not why they attend. They think they love the church. If you ask them, they say, oh yeah, we love the church, we love the preacher, we love everything. Stop lying. At the moment the church doesn't benefit you, you walk. No strings attached, nothing to break. You just stop coming back and the church continues on because there's no commitment there. Nothing real. It's all surface for self-benefit. There's a guy who left the church. His name is Joshua Harris. I kissed the church goodbye. I kissed dating goodbye. And he made this very analogy. Stop dating the church. Marry her. And then he apostatizes and leaves years later. But the truth haven't changed. Stop dating the church. It's still true. Marry her. Put your commitment into her and give your life to serve the church. For Pastor Randall, no. Serve the church because you want to serve Jesus. You say, well, there's this and there's this. Stop talking. Stop it. Well, they, well, they did, and they did, and they didn't. And they, look, stop it. You're going to spend your whole life outside of the church. You're going to die in a lonely grave. You're going to die without a preacher. You're going to die without somebody over your hospital bed praying for you. You're going to die without hugs. You're going to die without tears. And you're going to die all alone. The only people who are going to be comforted in these times is a people who have bound themselves to a church. And the church will step up and love them through anything. Verse 35. Love's example. Love's example, verse 35. By this, those things I just gave you, all people will know that you are my disciples on this one condition, one condition only. If you love one another. Biblical love separates a group from the world. Not like everybody else. Biblical love between brothers and sisters that's real is different than honky-tonk woman. It's different from any other institution out there. Nobody loves like the church loves if they do this right. Biblical love between brothers sends a message to the world. Those people must be disciples of Christ. Okay, it sends that message. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when we do communion. We all preach when we do communion, right? around the table, and we proclaim his death until he comes. That's what it says in the text. So one day, a month, we get to meet together and we all get to preach. We proclaim his death till he comes. Biblical love will demonstrate that you are a disciple. Now, this word, demonstrate, we'll get to in just one moment. The condition, if, if, you should have love. By implication, if you do not have, then no one will know that you are a disciple. Perhaps because you ain't, to use some slang. But if you love like this, the whole world will know. But if you don't, nobody will know. Perhaps because you're not. 
Let me give you a mock illustration really quickly. A person says, I am a Christian. I'm a disciple. You respond with, They say, I don't believe in church membership. Then you do not and cannot love the brethren. You don't even know who they are. And you have no commitment to them. It's impossible to love them. Because there's just no relation there. They cannot love the brethren. They've made no commitment. They, they don't have a relation like Jesus had to the disciples. And that's the standard. Remember, don't, don't get lost. You say, well, man, that's kind of hard. You're saying that we've got to go all in and commit. That's what Jesus did. He went all in with the 11, and he never backed out. Even when they failed and failed and failed and failed and failed, he stayed with them because that's the type of love he has. That's the example of how I'm to be in his church for his glory and for my good. It's at this point in a sermon here that many quote Tertullian. Tertullian wrote around 200 A.D., so 200, this is near unto Christ. And this is what he said, Tertullian said, 200 AD, around 200, this is what he said about the church. Listen. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. And he goes on to say, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things we have in common except, anybody? Our wives. I ain't sharing my wife with you. You ain't sharing your wife with me. But everything else, if you have a need and I can meet it, that's on me. And if I have a need and you can meet it, it's on you. And love says, let me find a way. When we act like that, and the world knows that we're disciples. Now, as far as application goes, the core of By the Word Baptist Church is made up of who? Who's it made up of? I'll tell you. They're those that we've stood over graves together. And we've wept over hospital beds together. Prayed our eyes out, hearts out, hoping somebody would live. We've rejoiced together. We've done evangelism together. We've gone on mission trips together. We've endured some of the ugliest church fights together. I remember one night I was preaching in this pulpit and they was having a fight back here behind the baptistry. I could hear them yelling. They're yelling and I'm yelling. And people out here going, who's yelling at who? I mean, we lived through that stuff together. We made hard decisions of church discipline together. We had deacons for 30 years that are removed under church discipline. Those are hard decisions to make. We had to work through that stuff. We cooked and cleaned for more Easter weeks than you can shake a stick at. And all those people washing dishes, straightening up the fellowship hall, doing all the work week in and week out. When there's a need, well, what do you do? I call them because they're the church. And I know they'll serve because they love the church. 
We fed hundreds for Thanksgiving. We had a night you couldn't put anybody else in the fellowship hall and all the other classrooms because the goofhead preacher invited Teen Challenge to come. We got 40 guys that were starving. And you worked and cooked and labored and stayed there. I don't know what time at night. Planted churches together. We've given to financial needs by the hundreds. We've done church work days together. So many more things. Why? Because we love one another and we use our gifts, our talents, and our abilities to do church together. That's what we do. And all this stuff is going to keep on. Look, this church is never going to be perfect. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be things. But there's some people in this room. I'm not asking, do you love the church? I'm not asking. Why? Same way I told Robbie this morning. I didn't get up this morning and say, hey, Bev, do you love me? Look, if you put up with me for 32 years... You must love me because I can't put up myself that long. She's proved her love. She's made it real. And many of you in this very room have proved your love. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, serving, working, giving, going, praying. All of these things that you do week in and week out, vacuum, trash, all this stuff that happens here year after year, five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, seeing your kids come up, seeing kids rebel, praying with those things, through, through those things with you, hurting with you, laughing with you, rejoicing with you, understanding you, seeing your love for me. I get a love offering this week and I'm like, wow, somebody must really love me. They gave me this. I don't know who it came from. Thank you. It's what church does. And maybe I could give to you. That's what we do. We don't always agree. We don't always get along. Quite frankly, I'm sure I get on somebody's nerves. But we've stayed together. We've stayed together. As your pastor, I encourage you and say, quote, there is no one else that I want to do church with. Is that church over better? Not better than this one. That's your opinion. Yep. Sure is. I pray that we continue to strive to obey the Lord Jesus in this command. Lastly, as the Apostle Paul challenged the church of Corinth, here's your challenge. It says one half of the verse found the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So give proof. Give proof before the churches of your love. Give proof. Interesting Greek word. You don't know where it's used? Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. God proved, demonstrated his love, sending his son to be a propitiation. I don't question whether God loved. He proved his love on Calvary. Now Paul's saying to us in the church of Corinth that's full of problems, prove your love for the churches. You, many of you are, have done this and are doing this. I encourage you to continue all the more. Now, in conclusion, in order to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, well, you're going to have to follow Christ. Now, listen carefully. I'm not going to name names, although I'm tempted to. I have heard, please listen, this is the end, I promise you. I have heard so much talk over the years about what I would term celebrity preachers. Everybody tune in. I know all the names, okay? I got the names. 
You can quote this person, you can quote that person, you can quote that person. Whoop-de-doo. You can't seem to quote the answer to the catechism question. I have heard all this talk about these celebrity preachers. And here's what we do. People read their books. Did you read those book? No. They listen to their podcast. Did you hear this podcast? No. Did you watch this video? No. Did you read their article? No. None of it. People say, did you read? Did you listen? Did you watch? No, 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 and no. Well, that preacher's stupid. He don't even know what's going on in the world. I'm happy about that. Don't bother me. Listen carefully. I'm trying to say as clear as I can. Celebrities do not love you. I'm not saying they're unconverted. I'm not even saying they're bad people. I'm just saying they don't love you. They don't know who you are. Look, let me be clear. The celebrity preacher you're following is not going to preach your funeral. They're not going to do your child's wedding. They're not going to pray over you when you're in the hospital facing open heart surgery. They're not going to help you with the physical situation you have. Look, let me, let's, let's make it even more clear. I have more respect. I'll use Paul Washer. He's an old friend of mine. So I'll use Paul Washer. I have more respect for widow ladies in this church and older people in this church. I have more respect for them making desserts and putting on a dessert table for a fellowship meal than I've ever had for Paul Washer. Let me tell you what I've been reading, listening to, and watching. I've been reading by the Word Baptist Church. And I've been watching by the Word Baptist Church. I've been viewing everything about your life. You know what? I know something about everybody in this room. So I pray for you by name. I know situations. I know what you deal with. I don't know everything, but I know a lot. I know, I know what John's about to do with a stent surgery. I know what Mary's about to do with a knee replacement. I know what's going on in a sense. Why? Because to be quite honest, this church is the only thing that matters in my life. In that sense. I mean, obviously Jesus, but it's all tied together. Well, why don't you read this? Why don't you? Look, dude, I'm reading my Bible, and I'm trying to exposit Scripture. It takes up the majority of my time because I want you to profit from the Word of God. Look, this guy on the podcast is not going to profit you. He doesn't even care about you. Oh, are you saying there's nothing good out there? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying invest yourself in your church. And don't tell me how to do my church like somebody else did theirs because they don't have it. Yeah, all that and much more. No, I didn't see it on Twitter either. And no, I don't have any followers on Twitter. When I ride my bicycle, I have about two people give me kudos. I don't give a rip. What I do care about is watching Joshua grow up in this church. What I care about is walking with a chairman of deacons who comes to preaching class and he don't even preach because he loves God's Word and wants to know it better. I care about people who have invested in this place for the glory of God. You know, my brother John Walton and Anita, their church closes down. Sad scenario, the church closes. And they just come, just pour themselves out. This guy serves the church all the time. You don't even know it. The guy's having heart surgery and this and that, and he's up here raking leaves. You don't even know he came by because he wouldn't tell you if you ask him. Why? Because he just loves the church. He just wants to serve. He finds something to do and plug himself in. That's what we do. And so I just want to encourage by the word Baptist church. I see, but more importantly, Jesus sees. He sees what you've done over all these years. He's making a record of all these things. And make no mistake about it, he's preparing a place for you in glory. And he will reward you according to what you've done. And I just want to say, it's a joy 
to walk with you. I don't know if I'll be alive tomorrow. No more than I know if you will. But I know it's a joy. Look, I'm a pessimist, and I can complain as good as anybody. I could name 47 billion faults in my own life, and yours too. Or we could take the truth of this and say, you know what? Let's look to Christ and figure out how we can love one another just as Christ loved his disciples. Brother Jeff, if you'll come and lead us in a song.